Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. Hi there, folks. This is WP Tonic, episode 219. Hooray, I've got the episode number correct. Um, it's our Friday show, our round table. I've had some deserters. Hopefully they're going to rejoin the um, tribe. But we've got a couple great guests and we've got Sally, who's a trooper. Um, I'm going to let Sally introduce herself first. Off you go, Sally. All right. My name is Sally Getch. I am the WP fangirl. I'm also the organizer of the East Bay WordPress meetup, and I have just created a Gutenberg editor test site, which anybody is welcome to uh, create an account on and, and play with Gutenberg. Wow, that sounds interesting. Um, let Dave, introduce yourself, Dave. Sure thing. Yeah, I'm Dave Kiss. I'm a full stack developer and educator. I like to uh, share what I know as soon as I learn it. And uh, I've been running my own business for the past five years. It's just been primarily plug-in sales related to uh, providing video tools for your WordPress site. That's great. And the great Chris Baggett is joining us. Not to introduce yourself, Chris. How's it going, everybody? I'm Chris Baggett, and I'm the co-founder of Lifter LMS, which is a WordPress learning management system plugin for creating online courses and membership sites. And I'm super excited to be here. Thanks, Jonathan. And um, Chris runs a really great podcast, um, which I suggest you go and listen to. I even invited me on it, which was That's a brave called, act. Uh, LMS cast. That was a brave act, wasn't it, Chris? It was. We survived. We survived. Yeah, we survived, do we? So let's yeah. go right into the news stories because we've got a few things to discuss. I think we go into five ways I like to be proven wrong about Getterberg. And that's by Josh Pollock. Um, he's been on the show as well. He's a great developer and a friend of the show. And he wrote an extensive article. Would you like to stop, start off, Sally, about this one? Uh, well, it would be uh, better if I'd actually watched this uh, video. But the, uh, there is an article that kind of summarizes the main points, you know, issues with accessibility, which, you know, the accessibility team is working hard on. Um, short codes, uh, which are an issue. Uh, but they're saying, wait, no short codes. Well, I, I've been following the core editor channel and the, the main WordPress uh, Slack. And um, I've seen people, you know, proposing, okay, here's a, sh here's a possible shortcode block. If there's something for, you know, for something where the creator, the plugin hasn't actually made a, a, a block for Gutenberg. So it's certainly being considered whether it will be done, what they will figure out. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, Metaboxes has been a huge discussion. Uh, I mean, you know, some of us, me included, use uh, plugins that rely on Metaboxes a lot. I mean, there there's plugins that almost everyone uses, like Yoast, uh, that need Metaboxes. Good God. Every single That's Matt. Oh. Matt reads it. Uh, Freaking... Hello. <laughs> Hello. Um, <laughs> my, he, my phone he wants to sort you out, Sally. He's already, oh, already unhappy. I am not sure Matt knows I exist. Wow. Um, and uh, <clears throat> But 
I think he does. It's important. Um, the, uh, but you know, if, if I use ACF a lot, for instance, and that yeah. relies totally on meta boxes, and it's like, okay, so what do we do? And we've seen an, a number of of posts about. So what happens here if you know, particularly for those who create plugins that rely on meta boxes, are they going to have to completely rewrite their plugins, and you know, basically put in a ton of work just to duplicate the functionality they already had, and so, you know. Again, there, there's a lot of discussion. I think they're trying to work something out that won't make it a disaster. But right now, it's a it, it's a pretty serious uh, issue. Um, and uh, you know, finally, there's there's kind of a uh, the question of you know the identity of WordPress and its um, uh, <clears throat> you know its editor and then backwards compatibility. And you know, we we already heard a number of these issues raised by. Um, our dear Morton, uh, who is feeling so worked up at the moment that he couldn't bear to join us. Um, yeah, he was tempted, but he just he just said he needed to cool off, didn't he? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think Morton overall has a professional reputation to maintain and, and possibly doesn't want to air his completely unfiltered thoughts on, on our podcast. But Never um, stopped me, did it, Sally? Ah, yes, but we're not Morton. No, um, true. I'm not we're, we're not, em we're not employed by a region. company that's owned by Microsoft. No, that's that's that you got a point there, haven't you? Um, Dave, you look puzzled, but hopefully you got something to say about this. Not puzzled, no. I, um, yeah, I, you know, I got involved in this conversation a little early, I think, because I was developing a plugin or am developing a plugin that relies heavily on using a meta box as a mounting point for some of this React stuff moving forward, and I just kind of organically ran into the question uh, as soon as this Gutenberg. Uh, project was available for public uh, discovery, I guess. Uh, so when I installed that, I was wondering, where, well, where are all the meta boxes? Where did they all go? And so like naturally, that already just broke that process for me, right? So um, I went kind of searching to determine if there was a discussion that was in place for this. And there were only a few people that kind of noticed that that was an issue up front. Uh, and now that that has really taken off as a discussion, right? So yeah, uh, it, it, I think it was important maybe a month ago to, uh, nobody was really talking about it. at this point, that discussion's really picked up and I think it's on everybody's radar as being a pretty important piece of, uh, what does it mean to be editing uh, a, a post, you know? And, and I think the Guten, that Gutenberg project is primarily trying to tackle post content, right? And, and making everything that is in, within that post content field uh, blockable, I guess. But how does that have an effect on everything else that's a re related to that particular post? Uh, the way that it was kind of built initially looks as though Gutenberg was meant to replace the entire post editor page, but some of those elements aren't necessarily related to post content. They're, you know, they're associated with um, meta fields and custom fields and things like that. So yeah, this, this was kind of uh, a puzzling oversight for me or maybe like an early non-consideration which i was a little unsure about uh that moving moving into really it but do you really do you really think that what do you mean that it wasn't considered well see that's the thing is like <laughs> how much of this is really open for discussion about change that we can have an effect on and how much of it is just uh, benevolent decisions right so I don't know. I, I, I can't say either way, but you see the community response and the community backlash and then uh, the decision comes out or the, the, uh, 
it's vocalized that MetaBox uh, APIs are not being deprecated. And so, yeah, who, who knows what the, what really is happening behind the scenes, but uh, the fact of the matter is that MetaBox in particular are definitely, you know, pretty yeah. integral so part. I, I thought a bit about how, button. you know, if they'd ever actually completed the fields API, we wouldn't be in all this trouble was interesting. It's like, so nobody stopped to think maybe we needed to do one thing before the next. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, on top of that, uh, there was the introduction of the REST API in 4.7, which, uh, you know, made it possible to authenticate and mutate any data from anywhere, from, a, from an app on your phone, from the admin. And so that Wild West was sort of released before the structure now of here's a, here's a React app that you need to follow in Gutenberg. Here's how you register a JavaScript Metabox. Uh, but it was, a little, it was a little bit, you know, too little too late, in my opinion, where people have already started, or at least I've already started using some of these newer technologies that they've released. And then they go back and say, well, wait, 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 uh, actually don't do it that way. Do it this way. But you know, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of hard to speak to that. Drew, what, um, what do you think about all this, Chris? I've pretty much stayed out of it. Um, I haven't really gotten into it. I'm so focused on, uh, just building our own product. We do use MetaBoxes heavily. I have a tremendous amount of trust in the WordPress community. I know that change is hard and, and sometimes, you know, bad leadership decisions are made or, or not made at all. So, but it's all a process that happens. I just haven't gotten into it at a deep level to really have an opinion on it yet. But at the end of the day, I work with lots of um, people using WordPress for the first time and also incredibly talented developers who use it uh, in a very advanced way. So that's always been the unique challenge of WordPress. I hope that this whole Gutenberg direction is, you know, going to accommodate both those markets. Yeah, I would have, I see where you're coming from, but, um, you know, the two main questions are, are the meta boxes um, and breaking, you know, one of the core um, elements of WordPress, you know, the, that compatibility will be maintained if it's at all possible. Um, in some ways, I feel that that's been carried too far and some really old functionality should be just put in a plug-in so it's still available if people need it. But on the other hand, they, 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 but like you say, Chris, you know, so, and David it's all up in the air isn't it but this thing that it's going to break compatibility quite substantially is a bit of a concern well what do you think sally do you think i'm overstating that or do you think they're the tool um, well the i think that you know i think the backwards compatibility issue is a concern and i th it depends partly on you know what breaks how uh and it, so, you know, it's like, well, I know that there are a lot of developers who would like to ditch this port for old versions of PHP because then they can use namespacing and, and other kinds of, of stuff. And, you know, that sounds all right to me because, you know, I make sure that my client sites and my own sites are all on, you know, up-to-date versions of PHP. But, um, you know, I think there's a lot of challenges that they have to work out with this. I do believe, given my impression of the, the team that's working on it, that they are really going to try to make it 
you know, to avoid the, the huge pitfalls and disasters before they put this into, uh, yeah. into core. And, you know, although I've only tested it very briefly, um, the writing experience is pretty nice. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the thing is, I, I think pretty much everybody agrees that the tiny MCE editor was broken. Um, you know, yeah. and the question is more, is this the replacement we want? Um, you know, and who is it for? And how do we make it, you know, because we have this huge, uh, complex ecosystem of, you know, themes and plugins and, and so on. You know, how do we make that uh, fit in with, with what we've already got? And, uh, you know, the initial proposal of Gutenberg was basically, well, it's a, it's a replacement for the post editor, but it seems clear that it's moving into sort of like, well, and then we sort of also combine this with the customizer and then it, you know, it, it takes over a whole bunch of, of other things. I, I heard someone refer to it as Gluttenberg, um, which seemed in, in, in some ways uh, uh, appropriate so that it's sort of like, well, if it's only supposed to be replacing the editor, you could leave the meta boxes in place. But if the, direction is is moving somewhere else then yeah we have a lot of stuff to deal with bef yeah. before this is ready for prime time yeah well i agree with chris i'm sure it's all going to be worked out and i think it's a great discussion really um right i think we go on to the next story um and um that's automatics push into managed wordpress and its potential impacts to the hosting ecosystem by Tony Perez on his um, perezbox.com. Um, before we start, um, Tony, um, one little thing about your article. You use some really big words that I had to look up myself. Um, I'm sure Sally didn't because she's got, a, um, I think you've got a degree in Greek and um, um, something else, haven't you? Classics, but I, Greek, and, Greek and Latin literature. So yes. I'm sure you knew exactly some of the big words he used, but I, I had to look them up and I've got two degrees, um, so maybe you should um, moderate the writing style. Um, but a really interesting article. I'm going to ask Chris, I don't know, did you have time to have a quick amuse of Tony's thoughts about this? I didn't read uh, Tony's article yet, but uh, I, when I first heard about this, I was surprised that I heard about it after the fact that it was, uh, oh, this just happened. Like, I, as a plugin developer, I would have liked to have known that was coming. It's like, surprise, uh, your plugin is going to be available on WordPress.com. Yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very happy is about that. Is that why you buy the house right now? Like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm very happy about that, but... Uh, <laughs> Distribution is great, uh, but immediately I just have lots of questions like, what does that mean for our premium add-ons if somebody wants that in that environment? What does that mean for our license system? What is that? What are the support implications? And I would have liked to have been involved in that conversation um, a, a little bit, or, you know, well, or it would at have least been, it, would have been, it would have been handy, would it, Chris? You know, yeah, it no, would have been. A little, been. A little or, note for Matt, you know. A little, you know, there we go. You can't ask for the world, can we, Chris? And they, I'm very happy about talking, it. I'm still trying talking, to understand it. They must be talking yeah. to somebody because I, I just saw a note that, you know, Gravity Forms is now available on uh, as part of that, you know, WordPress.com business plan. Well, that's a completely premium plugin. They must have worked something out about payment and licensing. And, and so you'd think maybe they'd be approaching some other people. Well, I think they always, they often go after the ubiquitous or ubiquity first, whether that's a hosting company or like WordPress in this case, what's ubiquitous? Page builders, forms, e-commerce. These are things that are very widespread. Um, but there's a lot of like 
a big part of the WordPress community is the niche, more the more niche products. So it's, uh, you know, in the spirit of WordPress um, and, and inclu- inclusion, uh, you know, I, it, I think it would be cool to see some of those things taking place, not just with the big players. We noticed a little while back that WooCommerce moved its uh, licensing system instead of from a separate plugin inside the free plugin. Uh, I believe from the helper they call it into inside the WooCommerce core. And now in hindsight, that was because I'm sure it has something to do with what just happened with WooCommerce now being available inside the WordPress hosting. Right. And I wonder if this is basically the approach they've decided to take to integrating WooCommerce because, you know, we weren't sure whether there was going to be sort of a a, a specialized uh, Woo version for the you know, for all of the uh, .com users or, or, or what. And, you know, maybe it's just like, okay, well, if you pay us enough money, uh, we'll let you install uh, plugins, and this is one of them. I, I have noticed that WooCommerce starts nagging the expletive deleted out of, out of you to, like, hook up Jetpack for the USPS services. And I'm like, hello? I'm using the WooCommerce add-on for Lifter to sell courses. Nothing that requires shipping. Yeah. <laughs> I turned shipping off. No, right. well, it, it's like somehow it has automatically installed this WooCommerce services plugin that I have to disable for it before it shuts up about this. And, and I'm starting to get really annoyed with all this Jetpack nag stuff. Because, oh, is, it as, is it as annoying as me, Sally? Oh, it's more annoying than you. No, well, um, I can shut you up. Well, uh, you <laughs> can. You always have that. <laughs> All right. Um, shall I go on to uh, Dave? What did you think? Did you agree with me? Did you manage to read the article? And um, he does use some big words at the beginning, doesn't he? Oh yeah, I, I did. I did read that article. Uh, in terms of my workflow, that that whole even any of the managed WordPress hosting doesn't really affect me a whole lot, other than just the the you know business. But um, it, it, yeah, it's not part of my tooling or anything like that. Um, but yeah, you know, you just see so many people that are entering this space that, that used to be kind of tied down by a, a few key players. And now it seems like, you know, there's a, there's 10 or 20 of them that are doing this managed WordPress hosting. So you, what you're, I think you'll see moving forward is just, uh, there's going to have to be ways for all these hosts to sweeten the deal for, uh, why you should choose them. Um, and really how I think that affects plugin developers is that, uh, your plugin better be uh, on the radar for something that's quality to one of these hosts so that when they come looking for, okay, what can we offer to our clients that are coming in as a package deal uh, that might solve some of these solutions. So you might only see, I think, moving forward and projecting this, you know, one or two really solid form plugins that are going to be offered by the hosts as, hey, this is the form plugin to use and this is the gallery plugin to use. This is the course builder plugin to use. And everything else is going to just be up to the smaller players uh, at that point and the plugin developers to figure out how to <laughs> compete with that, which is going to be really difficult. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Managed hosting has always been just this kind of thing that I've noticed happening, but I don't really engage with it a whole lot. No, Everyone I think and their got... brother does it now. Um... <laughs> brother does it. Uh, uh, I just love you, Sally. Rob, uh, yeah, you made some a great point there, Dave. Um, you know, you can really see like somebody manage hosting. We specialize in membership sites, 
um, or learning management systems. We're the learning management system host, WordPress hosting provider. And then they come to both of you and they say, you know, we're going to offer, you know, we want to offer um, your plugin solutions with our hosting and it'd be totally, you can, you can see that coming, can't you? What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I think the, uh, uh, the opportunity to niche down for managed WordPress hosting is, is incredible, you know, because um, there's just so many great niches out there, even within the education niche. And funny enough, um, funny enough, sorry to interrupt, but funny yeah. enough, looking back when I was on your show, that was part of our discussion, wasn't it? You know, that's what you need to do in 2017, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And like we, uh, I was kind of skeptical when I saw managed WordPress hosting first uh, roll out. I was like, what's the value here? Or like, what is it, you know, does it work? And over time, I'm now currently a very happy WP Engine user. And I've got, uh, we have an ex- extremely high traffic site. We've, we've got about, uh, we have over 100 websites of our own on WP Engine. We do, we use it and it's been great. We used to have our own Amazon cloud system and it was, it was a bear to manage. And so I, I see the value in managed WordPress hosting, but we're kind of power users and they're, they still add a ton of value for us. But to have a, uh, an easy button, I like to say, uh, for the, the would-be education entrepreneur or the would-be e-commerce entrepreneur or the would-be events, like event folk, conference focus, all these niches that, you know, you can just look at the WordPress theme marketplace and like, okay, what are all the categories? Okay, let's look at these categories. There could be a managed WordPress host for each one of those and, um, and really solve the unique problems because the problems that uh, learning creators have is different from, you know, another, you know, brick and mortar at an e-commerce store to your, to your business. So there's, there's room to differentiate. Oh, definitely. I think actually, but, um, and also, um, this is only my impression with Tony's, um, and I was only teasing, if you're listening, if you do listen to this, Tony, I'm only teasing. Um, but I'm English, I'm allowed to, uh, um, so, um, but the main thing I would say about the article is that surely the hosting companies can't be that surprised that WordPress.com are going down this route because, you know, fundamentally that they got a lot of venture capital invested in the company and they've made very publicly that they got very, um, looking for the right word here, very stringent um, growth that they're looking for um, world, world domination. Yeah. Um, but, the, you know, they're up against some strong comp- competition between Squarespace, Wix, and um, Shopify. Um, you know, they, they were going to, I felt it's pretty obvious they're going to go down this route. Um, so I'm surprised that they're that surprised. But I don't think it's the end of the world because I think all the things that Dave and Chris and Sally have said. So I think we're right on the dot here, halfway through the show. So I think we're going to go for our break, folks. And when we're coming back, we've got a great panel here for the subject, 
creating the main subject of the day, creating an online video course using WordPress. If you don't get some value by listening to the second half of this show, I'll be gobsmacked. So we'll be back in a minute. Do you want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up to date so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with full, no question asked, 30 day money back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's wp-tonic.com. Just like the podcast. We're coming back, folks. Got a great panel here. I've really enjoyed. We've had some juicy news stories, and I think we've had, not from me, obviously, but from the panel, we've had some insight. Uh, um, I never guarantee insight myself. Um, so we're on to the main topic, and I'm going to let Dave um, start with this. So, you know, you've produced some excellent plugins in this area. Um, what are some of the things people got to think about and do if they're thinking about an online video calls, Dave? Thanks for the uh, handoff there. Yeah, so, yeah, I've been... Uh... I guess formally trained in video production and uh, so my background doesn't necessarily come from the educational uh, angle. Uh, I like to teach and I like to share what I know and this is how I've learned how to even develop and code anything was all just by googling everything long enough until you actually figure out how it works. Um, so yeah, my, my educational path has certainly been non-traditional for anything related to web development. And, uh, you know, this is one of the things that I was talking about when I was on the show um, a few episodes ago, uh, which was what, what I like to do and the way that I like to learn is, is to be able to communicate with people on the same level that, that I am uh, in terms of skill. And, so, and the reason for that is because a lot of the folks, uh, as soon as you, you learn something, um, you still remember what the words were that you even were searching or the questions that you were asking. So you can really be on the same level as uh, that, that other beginner or somebody else that was just getting involved in that topic. And that's the most effective way to communicate that, that problem, right? So once you start getting further and further past that and growing your skill set, it becomes more and more difficult to yeah. communicate with somebody that's just getting started. Uh, so my mantra, um, ever since I got involved with all of this this web development stuff, was so, to, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, and I'm not going to do it a, a second time. But I was just when you were saying that, I have that problem with Americans all the time, Dave. Is it just my English wording, or what do you or, mean? Well, they don't. Most Americans don't seem to understand me most of the time. No, I'm going to let it go. So it, it was English humor there that's f- fallen to death. Uh, I, and I, I, apolo- like I apologize, actually, because <laughs> you were I, making a fantastic point and it won't happen again. Well, you, so, yeah, I, I thought it was funny, but I wasn't sure if, if you were joking. <laughs> no, there you go. I have permission to laugh. I can laugh. Good one. Right. Um, yeah, no, I understand you most of the time. Anyway, uh, most of the time. Um, <laughs> Where was I? So, Teaching yeah, so you want to communicate with the same level, right? And that's where 
we have sort of this gap of, of being able to communicate because once you become an expert, it becomes very difficult to uh, uh, communicate with the beginner. You just, you, know, you speak and, and very matter of fact, oh, you just do this, 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 and then you're done. And the beginner doesn't even understand some of the terms that you're using in that communication. Mm -hmm. So for me, everything that I've learned has always just been um, very quickly. Once I learn it, a lot of times I'll immediately take notes on it. And even the questions that I was asking and the search terms, and then even the next day, maybe uh, write up some sort of article or uh, record a video that I can share what I had just learned. If I, especially those things that I had a really hard time uh, with a couple of key uh, points learning or figuring out or why I was stuck on a certain thing. Uh, those are the ones that if you can really just describe how you solve that problem, I found to be very effective. And it can be for very specific topics as well. So for me, uh, yeah, it's this, this process of, you know, I've been, like I said, I've been doing this for about eight years, I guess, seven or eight years now. And uh, it's all just been that on loop for a long time, which is very uh, exhausting and tiring. But uh, it, it, I love to learn and I just love, I love to constantly challenge myself and then share and watch other people grow as well. Uh, so yeah, so um, in terms of video courses and how that relates to video course uh, stuff. So I kind of realized that in product development moving forward is that before uh, my main product is called Vimeography, which is a video gallery that helps uh, you connect your Vimeo account to your WordPress site. And I really liked that project. I really uh, enjoyed it. I, I was good at it. I had the video production background. I knew what I wanted to see out of it. I knew there was a market for it, but in terms of importance, it didn't really have the same level of importance as education does to me in that process of learning and sharing what I knew. So uh, that's where I set off to develop this uh, new plugin called Lunchbox, which is a fun name. Uh, and it's all about powering and, and leveraging video to be able to share uh, what you know and use your WordPress site to put together video courses and build your audience and, um, and even sell your courses as well. So yeah, so I, I jumped into that about a year ago and I have one of my own personal courses running on it as well at learn.davekiss.com, which is a technical course on how to use some Redux to JavaScript stuff. Um, and that was mostly just as an experiment to help drive product development, uh, but also just see how this process works. There's a lot of people that aren't necessarily traditionally qualified to be able to, to teach, um, but this information is is. Uh, people people want to know how to do what you already know. So uh, I just think that with the tools that are sur we're surrounded by and the products that are available, uh, it, it sort of enables anybody to just get started and share what you know and uh, build your audience out of that. I thought you made a, a great point um, about the language before I rudely interrupted you in mid-faults, which I apologize that my English humor just kind of overcome me. Um, Chris, um, great point there. Um, what I'd like to get from both of you and also you include Sally in the discussion is what you feel uh, when somebody's making a, a course and are utilizing video, what are some of the pitfalls or and some of the things you've learned by, you know, both of you have discussed this with clients and plus working on, on both your great um, plugins. What are some of the um, things that you got to understand? So I'll throw it over to you, Chris. Would you like to comment on Dave's great insight and then move the conversation on a little bit? Yeah, Dave Dave had a lot of great points there. And uh, the the idea with the, the lunchbox, I can't wait to check that out and, and see. Um, 
And, and you said something about you created the course as a, uh, as a way of experimenting yourself. Uh, and I feel like some of the best courses I see actually start out like it's, it's, it's kind of like the last step in the learning process. It's kind of almost cliche, but to tr truly master something, you have to teach it. So that, that very act of creating your, your first course or first course in a new area is it's a critical step. It's mission critical. So making, you know, making tools where that's easy for somebody to do is a really uh, powerful thing. Um, but moving into uh, the pitfalls, I think that the biggest mistake I see is that people think about online courses and video courses as uh, basically just a multimedia chapterized video version of a textbook. And that can be effective and you can convey a value, a, a large amount of information. It can be more appealing than a big, you know, fat textbook on the desk. But the, what I encourage people to do is to not think of themselves as online course designers or I need to make a, a series of video lessons in, in isolation, but actually think about something I call a learning experience design. And, and this involves thinking about a moment, a learning experience in your life, perhaps without technology. And I can do an extreme example. Like uh, when I was in my early 20s, I spent a month in the British Columbia wilderness or no trails or anything. There were lots of grizzly bears. I was on a, a expedition with a bunch of other young people learning how to survive and navigate uh, safely in a very wild region of the earth. And I learned a tremendous amount during that time period. And when I put together the building blocks of what caused those learning experiences to happen, there's things like uh, learning in teams. There are things like uh, having really dramatic consequences. You know, for example, I, I had several close encounters with a grizzly bear. I was leading a small group and I had, um, I got us lost and we spent the night out without our instructors or anything. And uh, you know, we, we had to figure out what to do. Um, but there's all these, there, there's consequences and then there's um, taking leadership as part of the learning process. That, that's the other mistake is assuming that the goal is to stand at the podium and deliver the sermon. And that's, that's not learning, that's just a piece of it. And um, so when you design a learning experience, videos are great and they're a very important part. But think about like talking through that video you know, empowering the person to lead, empowering the person to join other people at a similar place on the journey and, and empower them to get out in the real world and start getting feedback from, from reality, not just telling them what to do and what the right thing to say or type is. So that's, um, those are some of the pitfalls I see out there. That's great. Thanks for that. Um, Sally, you know, as a consumer and also helping people develop um, education membership sites with a high level of education content. What do, do what do you see some of the pitfalls when you're consuming some of these courses that are being made? Anything comes to your mind? Well, <clears throat> I think both uh, Dave and Chris have made really good points. I used to teach for a living. Yeah. Um, you know, I was an academic, and Dave is totally right. The more you know, the harder it is to teach beginners. The harder it is to say, how do I take this extensive, complex knowledge and decide, you know, what 
and introduce people to it in a way where I haven't simplified it to the point where I'm giving them misinformation. You know, I, I was a specialist in, in Greek tragedy and these kids would come to me with, with you know, whatever small experience they'd, they'd had in, in high school and basically everything they learned in their high school English classes was wrong. And it's like, you know, okay, this tragic flaw thing, throw that out. Um, hey, none of these authors you're reading ever heard of that term. Aristotle hadn't been born yet uh, and he didn't mean by it what people think he meant, uh, you know, and it, it, it's, so it's, it's very challenging. Teaching is hard. I think, you know, if you are somebody who already teaches in a classroom, it's probably easier in some ways to create one of these courses because you're used to that. You're used to, to knowing, yeah, this is not like a system of, all right, you drill a hole in somebody's head and you pour knowledge in through a funnel. That That's not how it works. People have to uh, engage in, in activities in order to to learn things. And so, you know, your course is not just, oh, here's a video with a with a lecture, I, I did some teaching for Media Bistro of, of Introductory WordPress. So yeah, I had to make a series of, you know, screen capture videos kind of walking through this and that, but we also had live discussion sessions and we had assignments that I gave people because unless they're actually using the thing, you're not really gonna know how to use it. And there are gonna be all the things that I didn't think about because uh, they're obvious to me now, but they're not obvious to somebody who's just starting out. Uh, and uh, it, yes, Chris is smiling because my cat has come to assault me again. Um, I'm just amazed at the multifunctionality that you show almost every time you come on this show, actually. Uh, yes, you, well, uh, with, with this cat, you have to learn to pet the cat and do anything else because you are always petting the cat. <laughs> Uh, but so, yeah, I think it's tough and you have to, you know, I taught the course for Media Bistro three or four times and, you know, I learned a bunch teaching it the first time about what I could expect and modified it for the next. And so, you know, don't think that when you create one of these courses, you're necessarily done because it will probably evolve once it encounters real students. And also, yeah, you have to think about a, a, a lot of stuff. You have to think about, you know, assignments or quizzes or some kind of, you know, way to, you know, for both you and the student to evaluate whether they have understood this. Uh, and that's one of the nice things about, uh, you know, a learning management system like, like Lifter. I haven't looked at Lunchbox yet. I have to check that out where it's got these, you know, built in. Okay. So here's your video. Now here's the follow up. Here's the engagement part. Here's the, you know, what do we, uh, what do we do next? Do we include a, you know, a quiz at the end to see if they got it? Uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, curriculum design is hard. Uh, and I think people need to uh, need to know that, that, you know, you're not likely to do it perfectly the first time, even if you have some experience. I think that's great points. Um, a question to Dave. Um, unfortunately, Kim Schiffler can't join us today because she's actually having to take her husband to have his always wisdom teeth removed. Ouch. And um, but um, Kim's uh, expert on learning management systems has presented and also spoken. And uh, I was interviewing Kim on Wednesday and we were talking about learning management systems, Dave, and um, she's saying that the trend seems to be mixing video um, with content, but also people are expecting um, live webinars to actually 
um, uh, element of being able to speak to the instructor one-to-one and more of that kind of human content. Do you see that as something you're trying to build into your solution, Dave? And what do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Communication and feedback. I mean, what we, we all need it for everything that we're working on. Every conversation that we have is important to be uh, always checking yourself to make sure that you, uh, you, you do believe in what you believe in. Right. So uh, in in terms of tooling, uh, you know, there's, there's so many different ways to be able to communicate, whether it's through zoom or through Slack or uh, even just a text message. Uh, so in terms of a, a lot of the different tools that can be involved for a, a LMS, a lot of times, and this, this is true for uh, selling stuff online too, these tools already exist. So let's do our best we can to already leverage them instead of having to uh, rewrite some of the code that may have already been written. So yeah, in terms of uh, my particular product and, and how I believe uh, some of this communication can work in terms of live and real time, would be if, uh, if a student enrolls in a course and, and the, or they've bought a course, they paid a course, then you can uh, send them an invite to a Slack channel where the teacher maybe schedules a hangout once a, once a week and a certain time that everybody can get in and ask questions and communicate even not only with the teacher but with each other and, and talk about how that process is going. You also have the ability to send message, messages individually with a student and a teacher through just the website so if you have a, like a message on a site or um, yeah, even setting up a, uh, any, sort of, any sort of hook that just allows you to communicate through whatever your preferred method is, you know, it could be a phone call. So I think just having different ways in place and a plan for how you, pl- how you would like to tackle communication and staying in touch with your students or, you know, the live uh, web, the, uh, webinar stuff too. All, all that stuff is great. So, I, but I, I just think it's important to be careful not to, uh, rewrite what already exists and reinvent the wheel and try to leverage the platforms that are already, uh, being used by people that are in the, uh, the niche that you're working within. Oh, thanks Dave. Chris, um, where's Dave was speaking? It's, you know, if education was really simple, it'd be like what Sandy says, you know, you could literally open somebody's head and you could just pour the information rope style and they would just learn, but it hasn't proven to work, has it? Um, so you're both in, have you got any insights about what, you know, you've spoken to a lot of people that are using your products um, at a lot of conversations. Do you got any insights about what, what fundamentally does work or does it really depend on what's being taught really or got any faults Chris yeah definitely um what fundamentally does work I always go back back to those stories of like out in the wilderness you know I had a teacher who would engage with each of us as an individual and we may be following a standard curriculum or program or course if you will but there was some individualized stuff there and for anybody listening to Dave's point about, you know, leveraging existing tools, you can add one sentence to your sales page that says includes a, you know, weekly or monthly group webinar or meeting, and you can use something like Zoom or go to meeting or whatever. And you've just instantly increased the value and opened up a feedback loop where, you know, people can come together and add that social part of the learning process. Because what some people do is they, they end up in this 
ghost town scenario where um, it's just me and the course material. There might be 20,000 other people in this course, but I'm, I'm all alone here. Uh, but the way I like to describe it is think about a book on your bookshelf. If you have a great book that you love, uh, let's say something about marketing with Seth Godin, wouldn't it be nice to have like a monthly webinar with Seth and he, or, uh, I could have owned it, Chris. I could have owned it, Chris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I just, and we just, uh, recently we, we released a, an add-on for Lifter LMS called private areas, which allows the teacher to have a private post or a series yeah, I was gonna, of I was private gonna ask, content. I was going to ask you student. about, yeah. Sorry yeah, to interrupt. It's okay. That that opens up that uh, feedback loop, and that's all in an effort to help make learning work. Because not everybody is the same, and the 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 big insight, if I want to drop it out there, that I think helps describe the situation, is an online course is kind of a do-it-yourself, like the video lessons and and multimedia audios, downloads, text, everything. That's the do-it-yourself. But when you add private coaching or group coaching into that offer or that learning experience opportunity, that's a done with you experience, which is completely different and often a lot more valuable. So I like to say in as general advice, just hypothetical numbers, you may have a hundred dollar video course, but if you add the course plus coaching, maybe that's a 500 or a thousand dollar course. And it can't scale infinitely if it involves like your time as a teacher. But I think that's the big mistake people try to do sometimes is they try to automate too much and they're missing out on the higher end of the market and getting better results with their people who are not all exactly the same. I think that's fantastic insight because uh, as I discussed with Kim on Wednesday um, is that, she said there was a trend, you know, a big trend of people saying, you know, get a course up and you, it can just be left. Passive and income. It, it's passive income. And she said nothing could be further from the truth if you really want something that can grow and um, be a lifestyle business. She said th- that just won't work in 2017. Um, back to um, Dave. Um, so like you say, because of your, you know, your wealth of experience with video plus, you know, your top-notch WordPress developer, have you got any um, tips or insights about people utilizing video, how they utilize it well and when they're not utilizing it that good? Yeah. Um, we talked about this, I think, a little bit last time around, but it's... Uh, yeah, when we were interviewing you, yeah. But yeah, uh, there's a couple of things with videos that will just immediately take your video from good or okay to great or better. Um, And part of it includes your lighting. Do you have some sort of light that you can throw on your face and fill so you're not, you know, two-faced shadows? Uh, Something that cheers cheers up the scene, brightens up the mood a bit. Uh, Do you have a professional microphone like like you guys have uh, and like I'm not using today? Do you have a, uh, a camera that provides a, an output quality that is greater than 480? Um, you know, we're, we're in this HD era now, so it's kind of standard that you should probably have something that's capable of, of producing a quality image. Uh, so that's just part of the quality. And yeah, I'm sure you've come across videos on YouTube before that don't meet those standards. And uh, it's, it's almost uh, impossible to watch and get through some of those just due to um, the volume or the quality of the audio or whatever. 
So those production pieces are, are very important. And I think those are a lot of things that um, folks that without a video production background may just kind of gloss over, but it really adds a lot of value to the video. And, and then specifically for the video itself, um, keeping it short, there's a lot of studies that have been done that uh, show some statistics about drop-off rates after uh, anywhere from two to uh, six to seven minutes. So, uh, and what's the reason for that? Well, I mean, even like I've been facing my dog whining in the other room and I, you know, I should probably go let him out here in a little bit or somebody knocking at the door or the baby starts crying. And so at any point, uh, somebody might get distracted and need to break away from, from your subject. So it's a lot easier to, for them to wrap up if, you, if, if you're capable of making it through one of your lessons or one of your videos in two to three minutes rather than 20 to 30 minutes. So uh, yeah, keeping it short, even just those tips um, will take your videos a long way in terms of uh, production quality and, and effectiveness. I've got a quick follow for your question, Dave, um, before I go back to Chris. Um, basically, I was listening, um, I was watching Brian Dean. I don't know if you know Brian um, mm -hmm. or heard of the name. He's really a, a powerful force in SEO, search engine optimization, and he created the term skyscraper. And he's been spending a lot more time on YouTube, producing a lot more video content. And he has got a video about the lessons he learned by trying to build an audience on YouTube. And he was saying that having an a intro where you, where you really emphasize the real value of the rest of the video before you go into a traditional intro with music and the animation, really get into the core. And obviously, an interesting title and the, and the tagging, which is really specific to YouTube. But do you think... Um, each video, you should have a, a starting where you really um, try and engage the person, get to the core what that video is going to be covering. What do you think of that, Dave? Yeah, uh, that's a good point. And I, I think that it, it kind of depends on your context. If you just have a bunch of videos that are available on YouTube, then absolutely. Uh, you know, how many times have maybe you visited a video and you have to kind of skip through it to see or find the point that uh, maybe they're talking about what you were looking for. Uh, rather, at the beginning, if you got your light going and your audio going and you got the cool music in the background and, uh, hey, in this video, this is what we're going to be talking to today, uh, we'll see you in a minute or we'll uh, uh, jump on in or whatever and then show kind of the intro if you have an intro package or something like that. Uh, however, if you have a, a course and the, the context has already been set or the assumption has already been set of what this course contains, I think that maybe you could have an, just an intro video at the beginning of the series to cover exactly what you're going to be talking about. And now somebody is already uh, sort of in your flow or in that funnel of what they what their expectations are and don't necessarily need to skip through to uh, determine if the content is correct because you've already explained that, that they're in the right place. So yeah, I think it just depends on what your outlet is and what your objective is, but especially in the uh, context of just posting videos to YouTube where the attention span is incredibly incredibly small uh, you want to capture them in the first you know couple of seconds so uh, you know you see you see some of that with the advertisements that you see that allows you to skip an ad in five seconds well they better do their best to make that first five seconds the most engaging five seconds of the viewer's life or else they're just gone which they're probably mostly gone anyway but uh, yeah it's a tough challenge oh thanks um chris you know i wanted to kind of wrap up um basically 
how much content do people have to offer for free? How much do they have to prep the audience and build a reputation? Like we've just touched YouTube, which is an enormous player in video now, dominates it, uh, online video. How, mu how much does a person have to realize how much free value they've got to offer to really then attract audience to their paid materials? That's a great question. Um, my general advice for free content is, and this is for, you know, an online course project can be huge or feel overwhelming to somebody, but I like to describe this basic sales funnel for an online course, which includes some free content, not a forever content treadmill. And that would be, so step one is to write one blog post about your subject matter. You know, now we're just going to start getting indexed, getting a little bit of SEO. Work your way up to five blog posts. From there, you move into what I call an email mini course, which is an opt-in, and then three to five follow-up emails that teaches something for free. And this is different from an ebook. This is an email-based mini course. And then a, a small free course on the website, uh, which may be just five to 10 lessons. But that's really where you start proving okay, I, I have your attention in your inbox, but also I have something of value for, for you over here on my website. And from there, it's time to create the, the bigger, more established paid course, uh, of which I recommend making one or two lessons of that freely accessible so that people can you know go to the cookie counter and get a free sample of the premium content. So that's, that's my general advice. Um, if you have... Uh, you know, if you are comfortable with video blogging, uh, doing some stuff on YouTube, perhaps being uh, doing a podcast or be at least doing a guest appearance on a podcast, that's, that's always great and a very fast way to accelerate some initial traction. But uh, that's my general advice. Oh, that's great. I think um, we've covered some fantastic information from two experts in their field and also with help from Sally. So, Sally... Um, how can people get hold of you and learn some more about what you offer and your posts and whatever? Sure. You can find me at WPFangirl.com where I do have a number of tutorials because like Dave, once I figure out how to do something, I want to write it down, um, uh, you know, in hopes of being useful to others, but mostly so I can remember how I did it. Uh, and also you can find the meetup at EastBayWP.com and I am at Sally Getch on Twitter. And I've got to say, Sally, great materials on your website. And I still remember your presentation at Sacramento WordCamp. I still think it was one of the best presentations I've seen in a long while. Thank you. Um, David, how can people learn more about you and find out more about your products? Sure, yeah. Talk to me. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm on Twitter, at Dave Kiss, very active. Uh, email me, daviddavekiss.com. And if you're interested in learning more about Lunchbox and the video course platform, that's at wplunchbox.com. And uh, yeah, I'm open to any sort of questions or comments and how to improve things and uh, help you out your personal situation as well. Oh, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast It's um, for this discussion. It's much appreciated, Dave. Chris, how can people find more about you? The best way to find me is over at lifterlms.com. We also have a very active Facebook group for online course creators and membership site owners. If you just Google or do a Facebook group search for Lifter LMS VIP, you'll find it. I'm at Chris Badgett on Twitter. And if anybody listening would like to check out my interview of Jonathan, 
on my podcast, which is called LMS Cast. It's number uh, 143. You can find that. Just Google LMSCast.com. Oh, thanks. And thanks, Chris, for coming on the show. It's been a blast. And you've had, uh, hopefully got some real value from this discussion, folks. Um, give us some feedback. We love to hear if you want more of this type of content on the show. I think you've had two of the top people um, in um, learning management systems. They're, you know, so hopefully you've got some quality um, insights here. And um, we're just going to wrap up the show. You can get hold of me quite easily. Um, go to my personal Twitter feed, at Jonathan Denwood. We also got a tonic uh, Twitter feed as well. Um, you can email me at jonathan at wp-tonic.com. I always answer my email personally if you've got a question or you need some help. And uh, we always say, please, if you get a moment, is give us a review on iTunes. I know if you're on a PC, using iTunes is a pain, but it really helps the show, and we love to get some new um, reviews on iTunes. It really does help the show. I'm going to wrap it up now. Um, we'll see you next week for another WP Tonic Roundtable show. Bye, folks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to WP Tonic, the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week.